0: Right, the first reading is Psalm 122, and this is from the authorised version. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel... Give thanks unto the Lord our God. For those are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls, and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee, because of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek thy good. The New Testament reading is from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And again, this is the authorised version. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child.
1: Christmas is coming. I can actually now officially say that all of the people that have been judging me, yes, for the last month or maybe two, uh, for saying that Christmas is coming, I can now actually legitimately say that we have successfully, and it's still lit, lit the Advent candle. This morning, a dedicated group of us were decorating the tree. Christmas is coming. Peter is looking at me and growling. I'm sorry, Peter, Christmas is coming. About 18 months ago, I stood up here and, and delivered a sermon in August and gave you an actual countdown of to how many days there were left of for Christmas that year. And some of you, rightly so at that point, probably pulled a similar face to what Peter's still giving me at the moment and said, it's a little too soon. I'm afraid it's now not. It won't surprise many of you to know that our Christmas tree in the flat is already up. Uh, If you were here at the church meeting the other week, you would have seen us, uh, just before it started, try and sneak in with a four-foot Christmas tree. It's not quite as big as this. If you've seen the flat upstairs, you'll realize that even having a four-foot Christmas tree in there is slightly excessive. Uh, But it is now decorated, and I'm sure if Steve actually had his way, it wouldn't be the case, uh, but I'm afraid it is up, and we are raring to go for Christmas this season. There are already trees, uh, sorry, there are already presents underneath the tree, readily wrapped. And my excuse for this is, is that with the wedding next week and then a few weeks for the honeymoon afterwards, I need to get as much Christmas in now as I possibly can. So, yes, the tree going up on the 19th of November might be a little bit excessive, but given that I'm spending at least three weeks not in the foot upstairs, I'm just trying to get as much of it as I could. It's an investment thing, it's fine. For me, Christmas and the excitement of Christmas is also about that eager expectation. Christmas Day is fantastic, and I love it, and I am the proverbial kid on Christmas Day, but perhaps now with a glass of tipple or something instead, but I, it is the expectation beforehand as well. I was talking to Ian the other day, and we were discussing how the Christmas cups have already started to appear, and they had done, I think, after Halloween, um, or even prior to Halloween, in the, the coffee shops that surround the church, and sort of comparing the different types of cups. On a very fascinating conversation we had one Wednesday evening, I think it was. But looking out, the signs of Christmas are very much there. Commercially, they're very much there. Again, conversation in the foyer this morning about how even Advent now has become commercialised. Advent calendars aren't these nice little quaint door-opening things anymore. Even a little cheeky chocolate, full-on perfume and beauty experiences and coffee experiences, so even Advent now, that period of expectant waiting has become commercialized. So I've never needed much of an excuse to get excited about Christmas, to prepare, to eagerly expect and await. But regardless of your opinion of that early festivity, festivity, today marks that day in which we do start walking towards the, the birth of the light. There's much to look forward to over the coming weeks of preparation, but there's also much to reflect on. We acknowledged already this morning in our prayers, in the songs that we've sung, in listening to Sarah, that there are many darknesses in our world. And it's in Advent that we start excitedly looking forward to the time in which the light came into that darkness. Much like around 6 B.C., because, ironically, Jesus was actually born before Christ, we find ourselves yoked to an empire. In the time of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem, this was a very physical beast. It was a roaring lion of Roman imperialism that dictated lives and demanded unswerving allegiance. Caesar was king, emperor, God, and his subjects were many. Today, our overlords look a little different from Caesar Augustus. And we've heard their names spoken many times during the sermons here up on on a Sunday morning, but also in our day-to-day life as a church that is actively engaged with social issues. We have Governor Greed. We've got Puppet King Persecution and Imperial Isolation, which, granted, sound like characters from a comic book series, but they do stand dominant over us in the face of Quirinius, Herod, and Caesar Augustus. But regardless of the names being different and the time being different, the story remains the same. Now, in the passages we uh, had read to us by Carol this morning from the beginning of Luke's gospel, there is some debate over the accuracy of the uh, census or the tax that Luke is describing. Many biblical scholars and historians agree that Luke, in writing his gospel, either made a mistake or he was just attempting to shoehorn a census into the birth narrative to add a sense of legitimacy to the historicity of his account. But also wanting to validate that Jesus' claim to the line of David as seated in Bethlehem. In fact, so I've been reliably informed, the census of Quirinius that is documented under the reign of King Herod in Luke's gospel more than likely took took place 10 years after his death. There are some arguments to suggest that the original Greek can be translated as registration before Corinius was governor of Syria, or in fact that there could have been other undocumented censuses in the time of both Corinius and Herod. The verses also set the tone and the context in which Jesus was being born into. This is not your fluffy, well-meaning, if slightly inaccurate, census sent from the British government. This is a tool used by a dictatorial empire to control its subjects both physically and emotionally. It is this practice that we can most easily liken to our modern day handling of the refugee crisis. Families not too dissimilar from Mary, Joseph, and the unborn Jesus are treated as statistical information and not living, breathing children of God. These verses indicate a gradual creep towards violent displacement the likes of which we now see happening today on a global scale. So our understanding, our reading, whether it's metaphorical or literal of those first few verses of Luke, they set the theme of Advent. They set that theme that we're all on a journey. We're on a journey to the birth of God made flesh. But that journey, as Sarah so accurately spoke about earlier, comes with risk. So Mary and Joseph's journey was clearly physical. It was one of displacement whilst living in occupied territory. And whilst that journey to Bethlehem may have only lasted for a few weeks prior to the birth, actually it lasted for a lot longer afterwards as well. For many years after Jesus was born, they had to seek refuge in Egypt, warned and afraid of returning to political tyranny. There's nothing new in this. God's people, as documented throughout scripture, were continually displaced. More itinerant than settled, always for one reason or another, having to move on. And there's certainly nothing new in displacement now. We only have to turn on the news, although less so in the wake of Trump and Brexit, to acknowledge the sheer number of people who, for largely political reasons through war, have been displaced from their homes and their countries. However, it's through the displacement of Mary and Joseph, perhaps even the displacement of God through Christ leaving the right hand of the Father, that we see something new in the age-old story of displacement. It is through the very specific displacement of Mary, Joseph, and their unborn child that points to a new beginning for all humanity. Another gradual creep, if you will, towards the actualization of the prayer that we say here at Bloomsbury every week alongside our global brothers and sisters. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Christ's birth narrative all seems rather grandiose as we tell it each year with romantic embellishments and the trappings of 2,000 years of church history. The journey of the simple teenage girl called upon by God to, marry, uh, to carry the Messiah is no less so. And Joseph's journey from doubting, scathing fiancé to devoted husband and father adds a flare of operatic drama to the tale. It's then really quite ironic when you take a step back and realize that actually the story is once again full of ordinary people doing what they can when God asks them to rise to the challenge of kingdom building. Let's consider the existence of the global church today. It has to be due in part to the faithful one step in front of the other of Mary and Joseph called by God despite or even in spite of their status within the Roman, Roman Empire or even the socio-cultural status as, as their members of their Jewish community two very regular people, nothing special to them other than being chosen by God, through the very mundane, of act, very mundane action of registering for a census, added further momentum to the will set in motion by others before them. So earlier we heard from Sarah, as she spoke of her experiences gathering finances and delivering aid to areas which often don't make the news. The jungle in Calais was on our doorstep and many of us did a sterling job of ignoring it. But the parts of Greece which Sarah visited didn't, and still don't even make it onto our news sources. If we are to believe in a God who used two marginalized, ethnically and culturally oppressed individuals to not only bring his son into the world, but raise him, how should we then view our part to play in the global story of dispersion, oppression, and isolationism? and the part of those who are dispersed, oppressed, and isolated. It's easy to give charitably, easier, perhaps, to give charitably, to, as much as we can, freely dedicate time and effort to. It's much harder to acknowledge the refugee other, the rough-sleeping other, the mentally ill other. Those who have intrinsic value to God as beings who can and will bring forth the kingdom. It's something that I really struggle with. How do I, with my limited power, enact and enable? How do I make a difference? How do we make a difference? But not just me, the person that we walk past on the street... Who's selling the big issue? The people that come and fill our foyer each week. How do we enable? How do we enact? How do we enable those people to make a difference? Just in the, way that, the same way that God enabled Mary to make that difference. It's in the verses of Psalm 122, which Carol read to us, that give us an insight to what we're working towards. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those you love be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. How powerful is that prayer? Because I, I think that's a prayer. That, that's, there's power in those words. May those you love be secure. May there be peace within your walls and a security within your citadels. 2,000-ish years ago, did Mary really have a certain understanding that the child that she was carrying would see a global church 2,000 years later be born? Even on her best days, after being told that she was going to carry them aside, did she really think that Me, insignificant Mary, can really make a difference. And yet here we are on a Sunday morning because of the child that she carried, standing, sitting, worshipping together. And that gradual creep towards the Jerusalem that is being described here, that gradual creep towards an end of violent displacement, towards the end of needing a candle lit for peace, because there is peace abundance. That gradual creep began in the actions and the steps of Mary and Joseph as they walked towards Bethlehem. May those you love be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels.